So it is an honor to speak here and be, in a, be a part of this incredible lineup of, of speakers. It's a real privilege for me and a privilege for Redeemer to be the host of this conference. It's also exciting for me because I have an hour instead of the normal 35 minutes. So this is fantastic. So uh, let me pray and we'll get started. Father, please bless this time and use it to bring honor to your name and to help your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in seminary, I had three jobs. The first was being a full-time student. The second was being a church custodian. And the third was teaching at a Christian university. So my schedule was such that seven days a week, I was around Christians. I loved it, don't get me wrong, but I did feel this sense that there was something missing in my life. One day, I was at the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, California, and I I came across a group of Christians who were talking to people about Jesus. They had a microphone that they were speaking from, and they had what they called the heckler mic, where people with questions, comments, or criticisms could also speak. What this did was it drew a crowd. And then I saw that Christians were in the crowd starting conversations that led to sharing Christ with the people who were there. I realized in that moment that that's what I was missing, that I was missing being around non-Christians. So for the next 18 months, just about every Friday night, I joined those Christians and I talked to people about Jesus until 2, 3, 4 a.m. I looked forward to it. I brought guys that I was discipling with me and many of them got excited about it too. I loved it. I had hundreds of conversations. I talked to Jews and Muslims and atheists and New Agers and uninformed Christians and people who didn't believe anything at all, not, not to mention young and old, rich and poor, every ethnicity. And again, I loved it. I loved the interaction. I, I loved the non-Christians that would come and talk to me every weekend. I loved getting to know the other Christians that were there. I loved it. And one night, three UCLA physics students stopped to listen, and I struck up a conversation with them. They were clearly intoxicated, uh, and in their pride, they wanted to debate me on the existence of truth. So I was happy to oblige. One of them, the most intoxicated of the three, was very dogmatic about his declarations that science had proven that there's no such thing as absolute truth. These are assertions that are true for all people, all times, and in all places, and that 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 kind of truth doesn't exist. He told me about experiments that he'd studied, and then he gave his conclusion very condescendingly. You see, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, after being polite and listening as he mocked me as an idiot, I just asked one simple question. Is that true? (laughs) And he didn't skip a beat. He immediately replied, absolutely. (laughs) And his two other friends did the Homer Simpson dope right there in that moment. I've been given the privilege of speaking on this subject of true and false religion. And the issue of of truth is at the heart of religion, irreligion, or anti-religion. Why? Because everyone thinks their view of religion is what? It's true. And everyone thinks that everyone who disagrees with their religious views are wrong. So in order to understand true and false religion, we have to first talk about truth. Truth is a tricky word. People will tend to think of truth like that physics students I talked to, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is relative. Truth, in other words, merely relates to the individuals, to individuals, cultures, those who are in power or what works. Over 60%, over three out of every five people reject the idea of absolute objective truth. And studies have shown that the closer you get to 18 years old, the higher that goes up. All the way to one study I read recently that said four out of every five teenagers believe there is no such thing as truth. 
So most people today reject the idea of truth. Now, if you and I were talking and I was one of that majority of people and I said to you, there is no truth, what, what should you say? The same thing I asked that guy, is that true? Now, why ask that question specifically? Because whatever answer I give will affirm that I couldn't be more wrong, that there actually is truth. What do I mean by that? Well, if I answer yes, then I'm saying it is true that there is no truth, which is a contradiction, and contradictions are a sign of error, a sure sign of error. If I answer no, then I'm saying it's not true that there is no truth. And in English, a double negative makes a positive. So it's not true that there is no truth is the same as saying it's true that there is truth. Either way, I'm actually forced to affirm what I'm trying to deny, that truth, in fact, does exist. Now, people will think you're tricking them in this moment, that you're playing a word game with them, because they live in an echo chamber where everybody assumes this idiocy is fact. But it's not a trick. And what it shows is that over three to four out of five people are wrong when it comes to truth. Truth exists. Everyone knows it. No one can argue otherwise. Interestingly, every system that denies the existence of objective truth has to automatically be wrong. Why? Because it's true that there is truth. So for the Bible to be true, for Christianity to be true, it would affirm the existence of truth. And guess what? It does. The word truth is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Jesus said he is the truth. He said that when he speaks, he speaks the truth. He said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And when he was praying, he said in John 17, 17, God's word is truth. I could give examples about this all day, but I find it interesting that most religions, irreligions, and anti-religions do not affirm this idea backed up by the Bible and common sense that all of us already know and take for granted, namely that truth exists. In the end, there is order in the universe because there is an orderer. Their laws of nature and their laws in nature and disciplines like science, math, and logic, because there's a lawgiver. And there's order in the world of epistemology, which is our theories of knowledge. There is order there because there is a mind that put reality together, and the God with that mind is the biblical God of truth. Now, to help us understand truth, I want to talk about uh, truth being relative. Now, when someone believes that truth is relative, that's the same as saying all truth is subjective, that truth only relates to the person, the, the subject, the individual making a claim. So when a person believes this, they'll say things that you probably hear out there like, that's true for you, but not for me. This is my truth. That's your truth. Well, some statements are true, and, 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 and that are true, it can be true for one person, but not another. Think about it. If I say In-N-Out is the best fast food restaurant, I mean, when I considered moving to Arizona, I knew it was God's will when I saw In-N-Out here. I did. Now pay, now pay attention, though, seriously. Is the statement In-N-Out is the best fast food restaurant true or false? Well, it depends, right? It depends on what? on the person, the subject, saying it. So the statement, in and out is the best fast food restaurant, sound like, it sounds like it's describing the restaurant, but it's really describing what? The person saying it. In other words, it's true for me, 
but maybe it's not true for somebody else. So is there anyone here who, who thinks In-N-Out is not the best fast food restaurant? Anybody? Okay, we've got some right over there. Okay. So for them, that statement is false. Now, what if I responded to them to their disagreement with, you're wrong? It's, it sounds strange to say that a person is wrong for thinking, thinking this, even though they are wrong, you know, but... <laughs> But why does, but let's think about it. Why does it sound strange? It sounds strange because relative truths are not the kinds of things that people can be wrong about. If I like it, it's true for me. If you don't, it's not true for you. No one is wrong because best fast food is an opinion that relates to people differently as a relative truth. We may disagree about food and movies and sports teams, but to say that one person is wrong about their tastes, that's not really how we deal with subjective truths because it's, it's really hard, probably even impossible, for me to be wrong about what I like, right? Now, what if I change this statement uh, in and out is the best fast food restaurant to in and out is a fast food restaurant. Is that true or false? It's true, right? No disagreements. Now, you could say it's not fast food, it's fine dining, and I would agree with you, but, you know, beyond that. <laughs> now, this second statement does not relate to the person, the subject. It's describing a person's, it's not describing a person's subjective personal opinions about food, but it's describing what? It's describing the restaurant. It's described, in fact, the statement is true regardless of the person saying it, right? You can say it, I can say it, anybody can say it. It's still true. The statement is true whether or not anyone says it. And that's because the statement is an objective truth. It's a statement that's true about an object, not the subject saying it. And it's these kinds of things that people can be right or wrong about. And it's not weird to say so. Think about it. If there was a disagreement on this, what, what, what would we do? Show them the website, get in your car and take them to one and say, see, there it is. And see that little thing on the side? That's the drive-thru because this is a fast food restaurant. In other words, you'd show them the world outside of their opinions and prove to them using evidence and logic and experience that they're wrong. in and out is, in fact, a fast food restaurant. So at this point, we've seen two ways all of us use the word truth. Statements are either relatively true, meaning true for the person making the claim uh, to truth, or statements are objectively true, meaning true about the object being talked about. So if I said, there's a fly on your shirt, that statement is only true if what? There's actually a fly on your shirt. But if you responded to me, that's just your truth. It wouldn't make sense. And the fly would still be on your shirt regardless. Why? Because that statement is true regardless of the person saying it. In other words, the statement doesn't depend on its truth for the person saying it at all. Anyone could say it. It's true no matter who says it, but only if the fly is where? Actually on your shirt. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Truth depends on whether or not a statement matches what? matches reality. When a statement matches reality, that statement is true. When a statement doesn't match reality, that statement is false. This is the normal, everyday, common sense, assume it without even thinking about it way that we use the word truth. And statements like that can be evaluated, tested, and criticized by comparing the statement to what? 
to reality. If there is no fly on your shirt, my statement is false. No matter how sincerely I believe it, no matter how passionately I say it, it's still false. If there is no fly on your shirt. So you getting this? You understanding this? This makes sense? Good, because where we're going now depends on understanding truth. Why? Because again, all religions, irreligions, and even anti-religions, all of them claim to be true. They don't claim to to describe a person's personal feelings. They claim to describe reality. They all claim to be the way the world actually is. They don't just claim to be true for the person who believes it, like uh, ice cream flavor, taste, movies, food, and all of that. They claim to be true for all people at all times and in all places, like math problems, even though many, as I said earlier, also at the same time reject objective truth. So when a Christian says Christianity is true, they're simultaneously saying Christianity is true for me and Christianity matches the way the world is. In other words, what, what it teaches matches reality, namely that there is one God who exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is separate from his creation, and as separate, he creates all things. The universe is not an illusion. It's real. It's not eternal. It had a beginning. God created human, humans as the only beings in his image, which places us above the rest of the created world and gives us intrinsic value, meaning value in what we are, not value because of our status or value because of what we do. We are created to bring God, God glory, to know, love, and serve him. But Satan fell and then took humanity with him. The whole race at the time sinned against God, which explains the existence of death and evil and explains why humanity, without exception, thinks and does evil things, ultimately acting as if God, as if they were God, seeking glory for themselves. We're all born God's rivals. Now, this God is a good God, which explains the existence of good, right, ethics, morality. And as a good God, he must punish evil. Evil unpunished is evil, and we all know that. So God must punish human evil, but God is also a God of love and compassion. And in his love for humanity, he sent his son Jesus to do three things. Live a life bringing God glory by obeying him, the life that we never would have lived, even want to live. Second, die the death we deserve as a substitute for sinners. And third, rise from the dead to prove that his payment for human evil was accepted. God punished all evil because he is just and good. As truly God, Jesus could endure the infinite punishment our sins deserve. And as truly human, he could actually be our substitute. Today, if anyone would turn from their rebellion by believing in Jesus, God will forgive their sin and transfer Jesus' perfect life to you so that God will treat you as if you lived Jesus' sinless life after treating Jesus as if he lived your life of sin when he was punished on the cross. These followers of Jesus now live to bring God glory, though never perfectly, as they're created to do in the first place. And and, and as such, what they do is they go all over the world telling other people about what Jesus did and what Jesus can do for them. Well, the story doesn't end there. Human rebellion will go from bad to worse to unbearable until what? Until Jesus returns, at which point he eradicates the possibility of evil, sets up a new reality where God's glory is the center of all things, just like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed for all eternity. See, Christians don't just like this 
or prefer it to other religions, many Christians would say they don't particularly prefer it and they would maybe change it to something like, I can live however I want and still go to heaven when I die. However, regardless of their preferences, Christians understand this to be the true story of reality, meaning it is the way the world actually is. The religion Jesus founded, therefore, is the one true religion, true ideology, true worldview, true theology, because Christianity, in other words, matches the way the world is. Now, in that moment, somebody might think, well, how do you know that? Well, all people test truth statements based on three basic questions. Number one, does it match reality? Meaning, does Christianity fit the way the world is? Did what the Bible describes actually happen? Second, does it contradict itself? Contradictions, again, are a sure sign of error. So any true contradictions in the Christian system would mean that it's false. And third, is it based on a reliable authority? Pretty much all the knowledge that you and I have is based on authority. We didn't actually go into the microscope and look at two, uh, one ox- hydrogen and two oxygen molecules, right? H2O, no, two hydrogen, one oxygen. We, we didn't actually do that. What did we do? We just, took the, we just took that as true knowledge from an authority. Well, every system has an authority they look to, whether it's personal experience, experiments, a prophet, a council of holy ones, a canon of writings, a leader, whatever. And for Christians, that authority is Jesus. He said he's God, that he forgives sins, that he's the giver of eternal life for all who believe in him, that all humanity will stand before him as their judge. That's what he said. Now, atheists may say that he was a good man, a good teacher, a, a fraud or revolutionary or something else. Muslims and Baha'i will call him a prophet. Jews will say that he's the false messiah. New Agers see him as, as a man with Christ consciousness, and on and on and on and on. Here's the point. Either Jesus is who he said he is, or he's not. And if he is who he said he is, then Christianity is true. Whether I like it or not, whether it makes me feel good or not, whether it works for me or not, it's true. Jesus said he's the truth, and he proved he's the truth by rising from the dead. And by definition, if, anything, if, if everything he said and did is true, then everything and everyone that disagrees with him is false. And I'll add a fourth after these other three are firmly in place, namely the effect Christianity has on people and on the planet when it's lived consistently. When that happens, lives are transformed. I could put a microphone up here, and and many of you could come up here and talk about how Jesus transformed your life. Not the teachings of Jesus, but actually Jesus. And many of of us, many can affirm and attest that, that, that not just personally, but even society is transformed by Christianity when it's lived consistently. Because when it is, hospitals and schools are built. The poor are cared for. The oppressed are set free. You get things like the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. Science flourishes. Economics flourishes. Art flourishes. Wherever Christianity has been lived consistently, the greatest amount of good has been done for the greatest amount of people. Why? Because it's true. So Christianity is the true religion. It matches reality. It doesn't contradict itself. And Jesus said it is. And when it comes to the issue of authority, he's the best possible authority on everything as the resurrected King, Savior, Judge, Lord, and God. Before I move on, let me ask you, will it make a difference if you just think Christianity is true or if you even know Christianity is true? 
Does knowledge that a medicine will cure you actually cure you? No, right? You must believe or trust in the medicine as the one that fixes your problem. How? By by putting it in your mouth and swallowing it. So let me put it this way. If Jesus is right, you will stand before him in judgment for all of your sins. Every deed, every decision, every thought that defies what he wants and sets you up as his rival. You will answer for all of that to him. And one day you will stand before him as your judge and you will be found guilty, but I think you already know that. And when that time comes for you, and it will come, you better have swallowed, you better have trusted the one cure for your SIN disease, which is Jesus. So you turn from your rebellion, turn from everything and everyone that would keep you from him, and you trust in him, you believe in him, you give your life to him. This is the truth. This is the true religion. Now, having said all that, there are a ton of ideologies, religions, and systems that disagree with Jesus. And since he's the authority on all things, let's look at what he said and what the guys who personally interacted with him said about the topic of false religion. Jesus said to his followers, Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. False prophets are disguised, in other words, as Christians in order to destroy you. He said to people who hated him, John 8, 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You can't put up with what I say. You don't don't like it. Why? Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Does that sound like meek and mild hippie Jesus right there? No, that's, that's not the real Jesus. He continues, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Lying is his native language. For he, why? Because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Satan lies and he spreads lies. Paul put it this way, Galatians 1.6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul again, 1 Timothy 6.3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. And two more. John, who's Jesus' closest friend, makes the distinction between true religion and false religion. 1 John 2.21 says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son as the Father, whoever confesses the Son as the Father also. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 
So false religion, in John's understanding, wasn't just, okay, there's true and false. There's truth and lies. There's truth and deception. One more. Jude helps us identify false teachers, saying, starting in verse 8, yet in like manner, these people, these false teachers also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These are hidden reefs in your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, there's a lot more that the New Testament says about false teachers than I just read. In fact, 26 out of 27 books in the New Testament either mention false teachers or are about false teachers. So what I want to do now is give you the basic characteristics of false religion in contrast with the truth that we heard, the truth taught by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, and then I'll end with, the, with how the false gets into Christianity and how Christians should respond to that. So to start, Christianity is described in the New Testament with such words as the truth, or the truth about Christ, or the way of truth, or the truth of the gospel, or the message the apostles preached, or the word of truth, or the message the early Christians received from the apostles, a message that, will, that won't have any additions to it later. In other words, there, Christianity was once for all given and no one can ever, no one should ever add anything to it or take anything from it. To do so is to be severely and even eternally cursed by God. Now, with that in mind, Christians are warned about men identified in the New Testament as false prophets, false teachers, false apostles, antichrists, who are liars, scoffers, deceitful workmen, fierce wolves, and Satan's servants. That's how they are described in the New Testament. And in case you think they're not a threat, numerous times the New Testament says there are many of them. Now, why are titles like liars and antichrist used for these men? It's because they cause trouble for Christians. How? By dividing them away from the truth and setting up obstacles that makes it hard for people to embrace the truth. That's because the content of what they teach is, we saw Jesus in John 8, the content is lies. And they promote a different gospel, ideologies that are contrary to the gospel, which are called destructive heresies built on false words. Now, while all of this is true of false religion, like the false gods surrounding God's people in the Old Testament, the particular distinctive of false teaching in the New Testament is that it poses as Christian. That's critical. It's promoted by antichrists who are substitutes for the real Jesus. They're also called false Christs or another Jesus. So again, they're wolves disguised as sheep. Sheep is a metaphor for God's people. They're deceivers who are trusted because they disguise themselves as true teachers. They claim to be teachers of the truth, but have no love for Christ as they twist the truth that they flat out disagree with and live lives of arrogance and rebellion. 
So these are wolves, not just in sheep's clothing. These are wolves in shepherd's clothing, pretending to be teachers of the truth while undermining the truth at every turn. And these are seen as the worst people in all the New Testament. And God does not let them off the hook without repentance. Using the language of the New Testament, they are accursed, eternally condemned, awaiting the inevitable if they don't repent, which is swift destruction. And like we read in Jude, the gloom of utter darkness, which has been reserved for them. You've had a table reserved for you at a restaurant. This this place of utter darkness is reserved for them. They they have a place at that table. They have have an apartment in in that area. And I don't Nobody would want to be there. Christians are warned that these liars are not just in the world, but they are among us. And will creep in unnoticed, to use the words of Jude 4, if we're not careful. Now, what happens if Christians aren't careful? What if we don't know what we believe and why we believe it? What could happen if we aren't on guard? To use the language of the New Testament, we can be exploited, harmed, led astray, drawn from the truth, and end up deserting God and departing from the truth, all after turning to a different gospel and embracing another Jesus. So listen, the stakes are that high. You won't lose your salvation if you actually have it, but you could lose a ton of blessing in this life and in the life to come. And because the stakes are that high, I'm going to show you how false teachers, these liars, these antichrists, how they get into churches, how they get into schools and parachurch organizations, denominations, colleges, and universities, and even into like your own home. How do they get in? How they're able to pull this off starts, number one, with supernatural opposition. Supernatural opposition. Now, while false teachers could just make up a religion, much false teaching has its genesis with the serpent of Genesis, the arch liar, the first false teacher, who at the very beginning set himself in opposition to God and the truth, Genesis 3. Jesus calls Satan the liar and father of lies, who does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. He is diametrically opposed to the truth. He actually disguises himself as an angel of light in order to deceive people into trusting him, trusting his intentions, trusting his doctrines. Therefore, since there's only one true religion, that means the source of all false religion, irreligion, and anti-religion can only be Satan, the father of lies. The most enlightened among us are actually following the teachings of a being they laugh about while mirroring the identical attitude that he has towards truth. Thanks to Satan's work, false religion, irreligion, and anti-religion come to people through the words of 1 Timothy 4.1, deceitful spirits who promote doctrines of demons. So to understand false religion accurately, you must start with the source Satan, who opposes the truth and uses his followers, both visible followers and invisible followers, to do the same, to oppose the truth. This is the the bottom of all false teaching. This is the spawn of all wickedness. There is nothing below this. 
This brings us next to the second step in how false teaching gets into the church. It happens second through doctrinal deviation. Doctrinal deviations. These teachings of demons are deviations from the truth, coming from false teachers who we've already seen claim to be followers of Jesus, but are actually of the devil, doing what he wants them to do because they are held captive by him to do his will. They don't understand the truth. They can't receive the truth. They refuse to believe in Jesus, so they oppose the truth as well. They don't really believe it, but they pretend to while distorting the gospel by speaking twisted things in order to get a hearing from God's people. So they swerve from the truth to proclaim lies that lead God's people astray from the truth so that they forget who God actually is. While claiming to be Christians, they're disqualified concerning the faith because they not only don't believe the truth, but they contradict the truth with what they teach. They're dominated by pride that says, I know better, I'm smarter, I understand the truth at a far deeper level than anything you will find in the Bible. At this point, the truth is distorted while at the same time being pushed as true Christianity, which brings us to our third step, which I'll call truth simulation. Truth simulation. In the New Testament, there are two main demonic teachings that sounded like Christianity, but were anything but Christianity. The first was the Judaizing heresy. The second was Gnosticism. Both claimed to offer more than just the simple message of Jesus, which wasn't enough. The Judaizing heresy, as seen in Paul's letter to the Galatians, consisted not in the denial of faith in Jesus to save people. It didn't didn't deny that at all. But it was the denial of faith alone. It was a mixture of faith in Jesus and obedience to God's law in the Old Testament. That was how a person was saved. So this created a simulation of the truth where human merit was added to God's grace, where good works must be added to faith where my contribution was to be added to the work that Jesus did all in order to be saved. Well, you're hearing that. These Galatians heard that, and it sounded right, and it sounded true. The deviation was unnoticeable. A simulation of the real thing was just enough to get a foothold in that group of churches. However, Paul goes to war. Galatians 2 says a person is not saved by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, because by the works of the law, no one will be saved. And that's because if salvation were through the law, then Christ died for nothing, end quote. So this simulation of the real thing would actually lead people to hell if believed, because while believing with all their hearts that they're saved and embracing the truth, Salvation can't come through works. And if salvation could come through works, everything Jesus did meant nothing. And Paul went to war against that. The same is true of Gnosticism. Now, you've already heard, and you will continue to hear a lot about Gnosticism. It is the heresy that refuses to die. It is the most dangerous distortion of Christianity the early church faced. Like the Judaizers, to mix Gnosticism with Christianity would destroy Christianity. Over and over, Gnosticism was vanquished, uh, left for dead on the battlefield of ideas. But every time, it's mostly dead because it always comes back. 
This is the problem addressed in Paul's letter to the Colossians and in the book of 1 John. Among many things you'll hear about, Gnosticism taught that the world was not fallen and in need of the redemption described in in, uh, Romans chapter 8, but that the creation had become so corrupt that it was beyond redemption. So much so that God does not work in the physical world, and he would never unite himself with the physical world. Now, only a handful of elites understood this wisdom because they're awake to these truths. These are the, the first woke. The rest of the masses are asleep, unenlightened morons. You can see this theology in Colossians with the asceticism that is described there, and you can see it in the book of 1 John in two ways. First, you can see it in John's insistence on obedience as evidence of eternal life. And second, you can see it in his insistence on the embracing the the true Jesus, which is also evidence that a person has eternal life. So asceticism is extreme self-discipline, even self-harm, as a renunciation of the physical world, which one's body is hopelessly a part of. So that one's re- so so that that's one response to Gnosticism. The physical world is evil. My body is part of the physical world. I must punish my body in order to be saved. You see that in Colossians. Second, the flip side is also a response of Gnostics, namely, whatever I do in my body doesn't matter because it can't touch my soul. So even if I live like the devil, indulging in every form of debauchery imaginable, the real me stays clean. Now it would make now it makes sense when John says in 1 John 2 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, so he's he's attacking the idea that I can live however I want because my body, even though corrupted, cannot, and nothing I do in my body can possibly touch my soul. So I can live however I want. John says, no. The God of the universe lives inside of you through trusting Christ, your life will change. And also, we now know why John would say this in 1 John 4 2. By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So the the Gnostic Jesus would be the man that the Christ kind of engulfed, and he became the Gnostic Savior, but he could never be a real human, because God would never defile himself by becoming a human. He is too holy for that. See, like, that sounds good. It, it, It uplifts the holiness of God, and at the same time, undermines the core of Christianity, Those who say this, John says, are not from God, and whoever believes in this false Gnostic Jesus is damned. So so both heresies were presented as the real thing. They sounded right. They sounded true. They sounded like what Jesus would say, but they were actually simulations. They appeared to be the real thing, but they were anything but the real thing. This is what Catholicism, Mormonism, other aberrant forms of Christianity do so well. They sound true, but their doctrinal deviations are at the core. And when they are at the core, what those deviations create is a simulation. 
This is my argument against Marxist socialism in my book, Stand Christianity versus Social Justice. The social justice movement creates a deviation in Christian doctrine by using our language, our concepts, redefines them, gutting them of their true meaning, but just enough to sound right. Just enough to sound true. Just enough to sound like, that does kind of sound like what Jesus would say. And it gets past your defenses. However, it's a simulation of Christianity, a satanic substitute for the real. It's a religion disguised as a political movement. It's a religion, a true antichrist, with a different God, a different Jesus, a different view of humanity, and a different view of salvation. It is different in every way, as I document in that book. And that is why Christians, no matter where we find ourselves all over the world, must stand against the social justice movement, just as the New Testament writers stood against the Judaizers and stood against Gnosticism. They are all simulations of the real thing. However, if the simulation is allowed to take hold and it becomes firmly in place, step number four is naive seduction. Naive seduction. At this point, doctrinal deviation complete, simulation of the truth established, the false teachers come to unsuspecting Christians and dupe them with their lies. That's why over and over again in the New Testament, these false teachers are called deceivers. They're liars who promote truth as error, promote evil as good. Also, God's people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They accomplish this through smooth talk and flattery, which is how they deceive the hearts of the naive, Romans 16, 18. All the while, hiding what they really are. Satanic liars disguising themselves as servants of the truth, 2 Corinthians 11. So when God's people, no longer firmly rooted and established on the rock that is the truth, become tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, which is accomplished by human cunning and the craftiness of deceitful scheming, we're left. When we, don't, when we are naive, we are left open to this seduction from false teaching. Do you hear the operational preparation of the Christian environment? Human cunning, deceitful scheming. Do you hear the satanic goals pursued against Christians in these texts? All of this is to accomplish what Paul rails against in Galatians, asking the Christians there in frustration, who has bewitched you? And why are you so foolish? These people are not idiots. You read the book of Galatians. There's some incredibly significant, deep theology that he assumed his readers would understand. They're not idiots. They were hypnotized by lies. So they missed the obvious error. The, the liars got in and turned off the lie detector without any of them knowing it. See, Christians are commanded to beware, watch out, and be on the alert. But many don't. And so they're easy praise for, pray for wolves to come in and devour them, or to switch the metaphor, they become easy targets to become held up as trophies the false teachers can boast in. Ah, picked another one off. Now, once God's people are bewitched, hypnotized, intoxicated, and seduced by the deceivers and their demonic simulations, the operation is now complete. 
which I'll summarize with my fifth point, church infiltration. Church infiltration. At this point, the fox is in the hen house. The traitor, the Manchurian candidate is in the White House. The disguise has worked. The false teachers are now thought to be the real thing. Their strategy of entryism has worked. The false has permeated the truth without the truth knowing it. Jesus told the story to illustrate this. Matthew 13, 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. Jesus then explains the story, starting in verse 36, saying, quote, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the, the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So the false will infiltrate the true and do the work of their father, the devil, in spreading false teaching, sin and disobedience, wherever they can, especially among God's people. The New Testament writers vehemently warn God's people about infiltration. Paul put it this way, Acts 20, 29, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, is, quote, fierce wolves will come in among you. You hear that? Not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Jude, Jesus' brother, put it this way, Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designed, designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Those words, have crept in means that when Jude is writing to these people, that those false teachers were already in their midst. John, Jesus' closest friend, put it this way, 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. They're not a few. There's not just a handful. There are many substitutes for the real Jesus seeking Entry among Christians. Peter put it this way, 2 Peter 2.1, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. So not only are there many antichrists out there, many false teachers peddling a substitute Jesus, but notice, Peter says, there will be many who follow them. In other words, false teaching counterfeits of false religion will be very popular. In general, they will be more popular and more accepted than true teachers. So this is how false religion gets a hold on and infiltrates biblical Christianity. The supernatural aggression of Satan himself takes the truth, twists it to create a doctrinal deviation that are just deviant enough to be damning, but not, de not deviant enough to be noticed. This deviation becomes a simulation of true Christianity. This simulation is passed off as the real thing. And because it's a simulation of the real thing, 
People, even God's people, think it's the real thing, think it's the truth as the simulation intoxicates them, bewitches them, tricks them into believing the lie. And once that happens, once false teaching enters the church as truth, once the destructive heresies are brought in secretly, once the enemy is crept in unnoticed, the infiltration of the church is complete. This can happen to a marriage, and this can happen to a denomination. This is what's happened hundreds of times, starting as we saw earlier in the first century, before the apostles were even in the grave. And it's still happening today. It's happening to schools, public and private. It's happening in sports leagues. It's happening in every single sector of our society. And unlike the past, the church is no different. It's happening to churches in our area, as many of you know. And it's happening to the Southern Baptist Convention, the churches, the universities, the seminaries. It's happening to the PCA and Calvary Chapel and the Assemblies of God and Vineyard. It's happening to Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition and Crew and Young Life and publishers like Zondervan and Erdman's and Baker and InterVarsity, just like it happened in the mainline denominations 100 years ago. It's happening through rebellious ideologies and through devious simulations being propagated as truth through delivery systems like social media, blogs, and podcasts, not to mention mandatory diversity training at work and CRT in school. Like in Galatia, it's bewitched true Christians, even Christian pastors, even Christian leaders who, like Peter and Barnabas, have been led astray and I hope one day repent publicly in line with the true repentance of 2 Corinthians 7, 11, and come back from the edge of the cliff. Well, in light of all of that, I don't want to end with the bad news. So what do we do with all of this? How should we respond to the infiltration that is out there and that's coming for us from many directions? I'm going to conclude by giving you five points straight from the Bible on how we must respond. First, we must practice truth affection. Truth affection. In other words, we must know, believe, love, and obey the truth. We must not ever take it for granted that of all the people out there committed to false religions, irreligions, and anti-religions, you have been given the highest privilege of knowing the truth that sets you free. That is a gift of God's mercy that you will spend endless ages worshiping him for. Second, we must practice diligent observation. Diligent observation. It's Jesus saying, beware. It's John saying, watch yourselves. It's Paul saying, watch out. In other words, you should treat every Christian teacher as guilty until proven innocent. You should test all of them, every last one of them, against the truth, which means it is imperative, essential, and mandatory that you know the truth. Paul also said to church leaders, be alert. The day of being passive about what you believe and why you believe it should have never existed you have a target on your back. You are a trophy for false teachers to take you from the truth, so watch out. This is 
This is true wokeness, being awake to the reality that false teaching is real, it's out there, and it's coming as a simulation of the real thing to seduce you, infiltrate your life, and take you away from being committed to the teachings found in the New Testament. You have a target on your life. It has been doing this all over the world for millennia, and it is still doing it as we speak. Third, we must practice discerning identification. Discerning identification, we need to be clear on what it is that separates the real from the counterfeit, the truth from the simulation. In short, it is what people say and how they live that identifies people as false teachers. These liars pretending to be Christians do not confess Jesus as the Christ. They deny that God became a human being. They deny the future resurrection. In short, they don't listen to the Bible but reject it and ignore it. Instead, what they do, in in addition, not instead, in addition, they divide people from the truth. They put obstacles in people's ways of of coming to embrace the truth. And non-Christians flock to them because they claim to be Christian leaders, all while perverting God's grace, using it to justify disobedience and debauchery. They're ungodly. Their lives are filled with prideful disobedience that comes from loving this rebellious world. They're insubordinate, refusing to submit to the truth. They're hypocrites. And it is by this truth, what they teach and how they live, that their lives will be identified as such. Then once they're identified, fourth, we must practice apologetic confrontation. Apologetic confrontation. This is not just for experts. Jude 3 says we are all told to contend earnestly for the faith, for the truth that Jesus and his followers taught. You see this in the ministry of Jesus. You see it in the ministry of Paul in the book of Acts. We are told, Titus 1.10, to silence false teachers, being ready when the situation presents itself to make a defense of the truth. Like Paul with the Judaizing heresy in Galatians, which seduced even Peter. We must stand firm against false teaching and the false teachers who are spreading it whether they do it unknowingly or knowingly, whether they are popular or obscure, whether they have a ton of people following or nobody following, whether it's happening in the world or happening in our homes, at our jobs, at our schools, wherever it is. What we do is we do a cost-benefit analysis. And we say, I will obey the Bible as long as it's not going to cost me too much in this moment. We must practice apologetic confrontation we are commanded to why it not only exposes the lies but it protects vulnerable people from the lies and maybe through the confrontation god will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth this is why it is so critical for church leaders to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, now if powerfully refuting false teachers using the scriptures doesn't have the desired effect of causing repentance, the final response we should have to the simulation of the truth being promoted by false religion, irreligion, and anti-religion is fifth, we must practice decisive extraction from the church decisive extraction. 
We are told not to tolerate false teachers masquerading as Christians while spreading lies is the truth, 2 Corinthians 11.4. Instead, we are told to avoid them, Romans 16.17. Shun them, 2 John 10, and have nothing to do with them, Titus 3.10. It is truth before unity and relationship for those who claim to teach the truth but actually distort the truth, preach another Jesus in a different gospel. Sadly, at a time when backbone is at an all-time low in this culture and sadly in the Christian church as well, when public opinion is more important than truth, when being liked is more sought after than being faithful, when being labeled as a fundamentalist is the worst in a scarlet letter, worse than compromise. In these dark days, we need people, especially leaders, who love the truth who are awake to the simulation, to the deception all around us. We need people with clarity who can see it, who can spot it, who can identify the false teaching and the false teachers. We need people with conviction who will confront the simulation and lift high the truth in the face of false religion. And we need people with courage who will not only do the hard and unpopular thing of confronting false teaching disguised as the truth, but who will extract it from their homes, their friendships, their schools, their jobs, their churches, their denominations, their parachurch organizations, their businesses, their affinity groups, and even their government. So as I close, will you, will I, will we stand as people of clarity, conviction, and courage, lifting high the truth, regardless of what comes our way, or will we kneel? As I, as I thought about all of this, I, I always come back to the, to the way that I started my book, Stand. I want to be able to say to my kids and my grandkids, I did not go silently into, the, uh, into error's night, but I raged against the dying of truth's light while I still had a chance. May all of us check our hearts and do the same.